Hi, welcome to the Bomb Squad podcast. I'm Austin Zwiebelman, and I'm here with... I'm Ethan Hawker. I am Tim M. Sullivan. And today we're going to be talking about the 1995 animated anthology movie, Memories. So, um, how did we stumble upon Memories this time? Because while this came out in 1995, there was a sort of recent happening that brought it back into contemporary releases. There was something that happened. Yeah, so Memories, um, it's sort of been, it was out on DVD for the longest time, um, released by Sony, and it had a, it had a Japanese Blu-ray release relatively recently, but, um, it never, never really got a remaster or anything over here, um, for the longest time. It was on, like, one of those four packs, um, that you would get of, um, anime films, um, that Yeah, Sony put... I, I got it in a two-pack with Steam Boy. Yeah, it's very much sort of just like they were using it as like a filler release for the longest time. It were not even for the longest time. It took forever for them to even re-release it. It was out of print for a while. But now, uh, Discotech Media has recently um, re-licensed it, and now they're re-releasing it on uh, Blu-ray. And we recently caught the um, premiere, the Twitch premiere, of the new dub for the film that was produced for their release, because originally it was just uh, Japanese with English subtitles. It's the only way you could watch it. And it's a really exceptional dub with some interesting production stuff going on um, behind it. But we'll get into more more details with that as we go on. Um, I think we should start off with like sort of an overview of the film and of our of our sort of experience with it <laughs> beforehand. Because uh, for me, I'll, I'll go first, I think. For me, uh, the film... I saw the film uh, in Japanese originally from a copy at my local library, you know, uh, pretty standard. Um, and honestly, I don't know why. It just washed right over me because um, I was I was young. I'm sure I was tired. So embarrassingly, I don't have any sort of cool story where I was like, oh, yeah, this really changed me because it is an excellent film. Like, it's it's really fantastic, especially upon this revisit. But that, that first time, for some reason, it just did not stick. But this time, you know, it was a it was a whole thing. It was extremely good. And I'm glad I got to revisit it. Um, Tim, what's your experience with memories? Yeah, so um, I, I'm a big fan of Toonami, and uh, they had a podcast for a while called Toonami Preflight, which would be like they would talk about uh, some of the shows and movies and stuff that they had played, and then they'd do like questions of the week, uh, like what, what's your favorite blank movie, blanky to blank blank. Um, and I know at least once uh, they brought up memories. And I thought that that was an interesting looking movie. So um, it grabbed my interest. And 2019, I was able to find the two pack that I was talking about at a con. Um, I think it was MatsuriCon in Ohio. And I watched that last year. And I mean, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, I would say uh, the first two segments stuck out for me the most on the first viewing. And then the third one, it didn't really. Uh, it, it, like like you said, it kind of washed over me the first time I watched it, but then uh, watching it again, uh, I definitely got an appreciation for I think all three segments and uh, an added appreciation for that third segment. And then I just watched the subversion again the other night for preparation and kind of refamiliarize myself with the previous version. And yeah, I, I think. Uh, I think it's one of those ones where uh, both versions of it are good in their own way. Like, uh, I, I could easily watch either one and be very entertained by it. Yeah. 
Austin, so what is your what is your familiarity with uh, what is your experience with memories for this? I was it was discussed in the group we're in that there was going to be a stream of memories, the discotheque stream where they premiered the new dub and uh, a version of the movie with some of the effects updated. I had never heard of this. I had seen something by uh, Otomo before, but I actually didn't know until after the movie that he had directed Akira. And uh, it was it was actually a pretty magical experience getting to watch a movie premiere streamed on Twitch. I had an amazing time. The quality was fantastic. Uh, it felt like I was stumbling into something important just because I read some reviews before the stream actually started. It appeared like Magnetic Rose was going to be a big deal. And I can thankfully say that it, it did have an effect on me. And I was pleasantly surprised by the other two. Um, Stink Bomb, because I really enjoyed it, because I suppose I'm a, I, I, I'm, I, it's, it's something to do with my personality type. I think we'll get into it, but it's, uh, then Cannon Fodder, if as a plot where nothing happens, I did at least find it very visually interesting and framed in a historical context. This thing looks really good. It definitely looks like a feature release with a lot of time and effort put into it. Uh, it's also uh, exciting to be in the proximity of something Satoshi Kone worked on, since there's not much of that. Absolute legend. I I had a really good time watching this, and I'm excited to be here talking about it. I, I overall enjoyed the movie, although, yeah, I I have I have differing feelings about the three different shorts. So I'm, ha I'm happy to be here, and I was really happy to be part of that stream, because it seems like the people at Discotech... Uh, they were on a tight ship and they had a lot of fun and there was about 30 minutes of interviews after the stream that were uh, pretty enlightening to the process. A lot of fun with some of the people who worked on it. Uh, overall, this was a positive experience for me and I'm glad that I caught this. Yeah, no, um, I think it's a pretty exceptional film. Um, I just kind of want to get that that sort of where we're coming at from this. Um, and we can, I, th I think, I, I do want to set the groundwork a little bit um, for, for what Memories is to sort of moving forward. Um, it's a, it's an adaptation of, it's a loose, loose, loose adaptation of, um, an Otomo manga of the same name, um, which i I'm relatively, I've seen bits and pieces from it. I've seen like some stuff from the colorized version and that sort of thing. Um, but I sat down with it. Um, and it's, uh, three stories, um, ostensibly from that collection. At least one of, uh, one of them is actually directly from the collection, um, Magnetic Rose, I know for sure. And, uh, but e each one is done by different directors, with uh, memories, what's interesting is um, two of the segments were done by Studio uh, 4C, um, and those were uh, Magnetic Rose and um, uh, Cannon Fodder were both done by them. And then um, Stinkbug was, or Stink Bomb, was done by Madhouse. What, and and you see that sort of what they what's interesting is there is sort of a parallel of that in the uh, in the dub, um, in that uh, two separate studios were contracted to do it. Um, for uh, Magnetic Rose, the uh, studio was um, NYAV Post. Um, and that's another one I've only seen written out. So uh, pardon me. This is going to sound like um, the old the old Galaxy Express dub. The Galaxy Express 999, um, sort of 3-9 kind of sh shit. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, the uh, NYAV Post and um, they did Magnetic Rose and Sound Cadence did uh, Stink Bomb and Ken Cannon Fodder. Um and I think I think all everybody involved put in really incredible performances. I think um, 
we'll get into the specifics, but I think this is going to be one of those dubs that goes down as like, I think this is going to make memories way more accessible and is going to result in it becoming one of those recognized as a classic um, in the States. Um, I think it's going to be really important, um, really significant. I'm really happy that Discotech put all the work into this one. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, but um, the, the overall film, is um, an Otomo film, and it's one of those sort of classic um, anthology anime, um, along with uh, the the two other that come to mind um, also involve Otomo, um, are uh, Neo Tokyo and uh, Robot Carnival. Um, and those are both different. Uh, they aren't overall Otomo works, but his his stamp is in each of them. He directed yeah. shorts. This is the one that, that's sort of his um, overall. You know, it's very much branded as Otomo, and you see it, like, aesthetically. It's in a lot of um, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, particularly in the character designs, and it makes sense to um, considering. Yeah, and that, that 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 was something that I really noticed with uh, Magnetic Rose in particular was that um, it very much looked like his style, which I think made it harder to dub because his animation previously has always had uh, the very intricate lip flap animations, which like. For Akira, I, I I love Akira. I I like the Genion dub from uh, the early two thousands. I think it's a well made dub, but it doesn't quite match the lip flaps. And I think with this dub, it wasn't something that was particularly noticeable. Yeah, no, I don't think um, I don't think it was at all. And you don't get any of that um, the old uh, the old streamline Akira, where the the the, prefer, the where it's a bunch of great actors but the performance is really tanked um by a bad animation we're by going a... to the olympics <laughs> jesus <laughs> uh, um but it's uh yeah where all, all the actors are great but the performances are sort of tanked by bad voice direction to match those uh more precise lip flaps um i think they they really towed the line very well in this um mm-hmm. and then again we'll get into the, the sort of specifics as we as we uh, dive into each individual short, um, but uh, just again setting sort of context. So, Memories is a good movie. That's the overview done. Uh, that we're going to talk about here. I think I can, I'm trying to think of any big um, production notes to get into um, before we dig in, but I think that's basically it. Is just sort of it's an Otomo adaptation, um, more or less, mm-hmm. very loosely anthology film sort of stuff um and i think w- with that let's just dive into magnetic rose um and i think austin definitely wants to talk about it so let's let austin take the lead uh my my first experience with magnetic rose i was trying to keep shorthand notes because i wanted to stay immersed in the film and i knew that i had some access to versions of it afterward in case i wanted to go back and pick up on details and uh i i got two words down on my notepad and it was paralytic sadness because I must have been something I was feeling that night or hopefully it was the actual power of the short I uh, the reviews assembled uh, for this film in the years that passed since it was released uh, the general consensus is that Magnetic Rose is sort of the standout short although there are detractors from that opinion um, some people think that uh, cannon fodder is better uh, but I I found Magnetic Rose to be very appealing. Uh, I I was a little bit uh, taken aback at the beginning because it's uh, I I wasn't exactly sure what I was in for. But by the time that they uh, 
go to investigate uh, the main plot and they end up in sort of the Star Trek-esque situation where the whole short unfolds, I was completely taken in. I found the uh, developments in the plot to be very heartbreaking. I, uh, I I was crying by the end of it. It was very emotional. I thought the use of music was just fantastic. And I, I like to do a little bit of um, research potentially because I found out that Stink Bomb was based on an event that I'm sure we'll talk about once we get to Stink Bomb. With this one, I was wondering if there was some sort of parallel. Um, there was something that similarly it might have been based on. And uh, the closest thing that I could get to that kind of like tickles your mind in the same way was that it features um, opera pieces from uh, Madame Butterfly and Tosca by uh, Giacomo Puccini. I think Giacomo Puccini is the way you say that. Yeah, yeah, Puccini. And there was a an opera singer who achieved a lot of fame for doing Madame Butterfly. Her name was Tamaki Miura, and uh, she even performed in St. Louis in 1915, which I have to rep because there's not much to rep the city for. She uh, played Madame Butterfly, and uh, there is a memorial to Miura that is in the Glover Garden in the port city of Nagasaki. Uh, where the opera itself was set. And there's a plaque there that's sort of similar to a plaque in the film in the sort of sci-fi horror landscape they end up in. Uh, the real-life plaque, the final sentence of it reads, It is hoped that her service will win for herself an everlasting name. And uh, that's as close as I could find to a real-life parallel because, you know, Stink Bomb directly uh, borrows from a real-life incident. I found that... Found that fun. Uh, the scripts by Satoshi Kone, uh, there's, oh, there's one more Easter egg I have to talk about. Uh, they mentioned this in the post stream for Discotech. Uh, Carlo Rombaldi, the uh, love interest of the villain in this movie, uh, is actually the name of a special effects artist who worked on uh, and won an Academy Awards for Alien and E.T. the mm -hmm. Extraterrestrial. As a uh, as a mood piece, it's very solid. You could say that it it leans on anime tropes uh, a little bit. There, are, uh, the characters are a little bit flat. There's one that's just broadcasting as a womanizer. Uh, that is Miguel, one of the people aboard the uh, the ship that goes to answer distress distress signal uh, in this sort of far off junk heap floating around in space. It is uh, Miguel and Heinz, or I'd say the two uh, main characters you're following through this. It, it doesn't give them terribly much development. And uh, the some of the dialogue written about the, the villain, who is a sort of heartbroken apparition of a famous opera singer, uh, is a little bit silly because uh, she's a ghost who wants to remain trapped in her memories with her lover, who I think... Uh, spurned her and then she murdered him aboard this sort of floating spaceship and uh there was a scene in particular where they were talking about roses and the dialogue just came across as just very very strange uh because she she uh is sort of mad that he's not always thinking of her in some capacity there's like a line that's just very oh this isn't how human beings talk and it, it's it it's it's sort of part of that anime thing where it's like, oh my god, please write better. This isn't, uh, you know, 
it's it, it's not novelistic in any capacity it's very much a, a thing of anime but i i found uh i found it to personally be very effective uh the the various turns that they take uh the the, the things that they surprise you with throughout this whether or not it's trying to be the smartest movie in the room is absolutely not what matters it it punched me in the face and i i found it to be beautiful if you uh take the gestalt of the sound and the images and the the setting it's all it's all very haunting and it emotionally affected me so I, i've got mixed feelings about it um as as like a uh you know is this a good introduction to anime but i think if you've already if you already enjoy animating some capacity this has the haunting sadness and that was refreshing to see uh because i i at least enjoyed the emotions that it made me feel tim how did you feel about magnetic rose yeah yeah i mean i think that's um that's a valid overview of it uh i i would say it's probably the strongest piece of the film as a whole it definitely is the most emotional and story driven i would say the the dialogue stuff probably not a first anime but maybe like fifth i I think it's i think it's not like advanced level weeb shit but like it's 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 definitely up there i guess i would say um and um the one one line in the dub that I thought was a little odd was they, they made a reference to ghosting, ghost which <laughs> was like not oh, yeah. a thing until recently. <laughs> so that that was a weird like modern joke that they slipped into a dub of a 1995 movie. But <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, otherwise it, it's pretty solid. Um, one one thing I mentioned before the cast uh that i thought was kind of interesting probably kind of whatever to most people but as someone who watches a lot of modern anime dubs this struck me as interesting was that um there's a moment in magnetic rose where a character drops the f-bomb which like probably around like 2015 2016 dubs just kind of stopped having the f-word in them (laughs) I don't know why, but it's just something I've noticed is that it's much, much rarer. Like, I know Devilman Crybaby had some F-bombs. That's the only one I can really think of in recent years before, like, after, like, 2015, 2014. Yeah, it was a solid dub. It was... The dub was directed by uh, Michael Sinter Nicholas, who uh, some of you may know as the voice of the main character from Your Name, or uh, if you're like me, you know him as the voice of Dean Venture. Yeah, I got to meet him at Yomacon 2018. He's a super pleasant person to talk to. Um, he he's very he's very much a spaz, and he's very enthusiastic about his work. And I think that's what makes him really interesting to talk to and listen to. And like, he clearly put his passion in uh, directing the dub for this one. Yeah, yeah, I think um, you see, you definitely see a lot of lot of passion in um, in the dub overall. Um, yeah, I generally agree with uh, the sentiments. I think um, I do kind of appreciate the um, disparity in the dialogue. Um, I I'm not. 
I don't really, um, I didn't mind ghosting. I did notice it. Like, it does stand out, certainly. Um, but I didn't mind it too much because, um, you know, it's the future, whatever, you know. Right. Um, but I get, but I get it where the, the disparity between the traditional animation and everything, like, I could throw you. Um, certainly. I didn't even, I didn't even consider it, like, in that particular context. Um, but, but yeah, that is sort of a, a weird quirk. I, I kind of, but um, in terms of the dialogue being kind of, particularly the dialogue between sort of Eva and... Um, the, uh, and uh, Carlos is I, I kind of appreciated it on some level. Um, the uh, sort of awkwardness, the stiltedness of it. Um, uh, no, it's not really stilted, but um, the fact that it is sort of direct um, and weird because that sort of reflects how the, the aristocracy and wealthy people talk. Like um, it, it does, there is a contrast drawn between how the um, they talk and how um, the crew, uh, the crew of the, the uh, poorly, poorly time uh, the corona uh, as we say we record this during the uh the coronavirus pandemic of 2020 to 2021 to 2022 question mark um uh but i i i didn't it didn't stand out to me quite so much like yeah it was sort of direct but again um i think that is a lot of the uh, there's a lot of subtler um, both voice acting and character acting throughout the piece um, that I think pushes it beyond uh, just the um, just the dialogue, if that makes uh, makes any sense. Um, in particular, what it kind of um, kind of reminded me of was uh, Solaris, um, and this idea of um, trying to uh, like like sort of experiencing uh, regrets. In that way, which I always appreciate, it's a lot more malicious in um, in Magnetic Rose, which might might not do it for some people. Like like a lot of the appeal of Solaris is sort of the vagueness of um, what's going on. Um, but I think, um, particularly in its last moments, it's uh, very evocative. <laughs> um, it, it's you know striking. It's 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 good at setting setting a mood. Everything builds very well. It's you know it deserves its praise. I would say um, I don't know if it's my favorite. I think I think I really like all three segments for very different reasons. So it's it's difficult for me to pick a uh, favorite, but I think it's easily the most approachable. Um, that's that's fair to say. Three. I I would say they're all um, very good at very different things. Yeah, exactly. I think like like you, you this like it's a good a good starting point um, in that respect, and I think it scratch. It, on a lot of levels, levels, it just scratches certain itches, like um, the science fiction element of it, like the idea of sort of um, how physics are rendered, how they jump around, like the three-dimensional movement, um, particularly uh, of the um, of those sort of uh, like those little buggy bumpers or whatever, those um, over-the-head uh, units that they're using as they move in three-dimensional space is super impressive even now. Um, mm. And uh, speaking specifically with regards to... Um, the restoration. Um, this is the one that actually experienced the the most restoration on Discotex end, where there were originally a lot of um, there was a lot of early digital animation um, in the scenes where you see uh, with uh, Eva um, with those like distortion effects and everything, um, and it was uh, to make it uh, blend in with the uh, the film. Um, they compressed it heavily um, after exporting it, which. Um, and it stood out in the because re- it wasn't really restored. Mm-hmm. 
um, in the uh, in the Japanese BD release or anything. Um, and and here you can't you can't tell it's uh, seamless um, how good the restoration is. Like they they um, they did everything right. Um, they didn't clean it up too much. They were very good because they would they actually restored the grain to the scenes and everything, um, which is, you know, what they do with a lot of their work. They did that with their release of Galaxy Express 3.9, where they cleaned it up a bit more. Um, and then, because um, the original Japanese release didn't have a grain plate reapplied, so it looked a bit too um, clean. Um, but just adding that, it adds back so much texture to the film while still making it really, really good. And I appreciate that. Like, it's a, sm- it's, it's a relatively small thing, but um, it, it makes it feel a lot more... It's, more representative of how you would have seen it in the theater. Um, and it's an element that just adds a lot to the film overall. Um, you Like, it looks gorgeous yeah. even even going through Twitch compression. Um, I noticed a huge difference in the quality of the old DVD release and, and this. Yeah, like, th- like that, that stuff matters because, like, I know a lot of remasters, um, they, they don't have enough of that, like, grainy quality to them and they just kind of feel like just kind of smudgy and oversaturated mm-hmm. yeah and you don't really... and this 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 felt right yeah exactly like it felt um just exactly where you would want something like this um in terms of in terms of remaster and particularly with what they had to work with because they weren't restoring um this is getting into technical minutia more because i think i think there is more there's some level more narrative stuff because I think I almost it's one of those ones I almost don't want to spoil. Like I just want to say it's very emotionally resonant, um, and I think right. themes are interesting. But I think talking about it on its face, like that's been did been done to death um, <laughs> by by smarter people than than I. Anyways, I mean Austin's on this podcast <laughs> talking about it, so there you go. Um, yeah. Pretty and as is Tim, uh, both of you. Uh, um, as I just ramble on about, it's kind of like Solaris, but um, <laughs> regarding the re- the restoration, I think it's really incredible what they were able to do with just um, because that was the way they did that. That was just artificial. Um, well, they, they did some hand cleaning, of course, but that was artificial intelligence um, upscaling. They didn't restore from film masters to get that. Yeah, they used. Um, I, I believe they used the same system because um, I, I would imagine this had an LD release. Um, they're they're using the same system they're using to remaster Project ACO, um, which similarly doesn't have any film masters. Um, and it's pretty incredible. Like, um, it's obviously not ideal, but and but particularly for, like, small snippets of something um, like this. Like, it, and again, just, there's, I'm sure there's, there's so much more work to it than, you know, the typical AI thing where, you know, you just plug it in and... A little upscale because I know they're occasionally they'll post like production stuff like the individual accounts um, like Brady Hartel or, or Justin Savakis or whomstever um, will uh, post about their how they're working on it um, and be like yeah we got so many but then we had to hand correct so many with uh, because of frame blending this that or the other and we'd have to run it through again and everything and it's it's more work than um, it seems but it, but it really comes through the finished thing and i think that mm. I'm, I'm really looking forward to see seeing what more they can do with that like that uh that project eco release i'm super excited for um but like just pure technical stuff i know that's that's relatively boring compared to this this delightful masterwork of animation um i i'll talk about one last thing before we move on um but i think i thought it was interesting just because um the director for this this piece, because um, I know so much um, of the attention is focused on uh, Satoshi Kon as the writer, um, 
But uh, let me see. It's, I believe it's Koji Morimoto who uh, he directed this piece. He also directed, most people will probably be familiar with this, um, a Robot Carnival. He directed uh, mm-hmm. the earlier sequence in that Franken Gears, which is, it's a short thing, but um, I think it, I think it really shows off his strengths as a director um, in that uh, his strengths are, he's very good at directing like character acting because Franken Gears, it's uh, it's ostensibly, you know, it's Frankenstein, you know, like um, a very truncated mm-hmm. joke, Frankenstein that's basically just all built up for a silly joke. Um, but it's a lot of very, it's all based, there's no dialogue. Um, so it's all character acting sort of stuff. And it's all a lot of very three-dimensional animation. Um, just the, just the right amount of stylization that it's not over the top. And I think he was in a, in a way sort of the perfect fit for it. Like even in Franken gears, you can tell with what is ostensibly a very silly short film, um, that he's able to get a lot of the subtleties in there, um, in a way that also really helps drama. Um, and I think that's, that's what makes this film so good. Uh, like, um, when you're seeing mm-hmm. characters react to things, um, like when we see Heinz stumbling through the water as these, th- as these masses of, um, junk wreckage from the ship, just sort of get in his way. Um, and seeing him do, uh, go through that, um, there's a sense of genuine weight, but more than just like in the animation sense of like, hey, that character looks like they actually, they are being affected by physics. But um, the way he's trudging, like he's very clearly desperately trying to move towards something. I think that's a sort of effect that it's so deliberate and it's something you can only really get in animation um, is that very deliberate sense of character. Because, you know, obviously it's all hand rendered. Um that I, I think the film, like like even if you're trying to tell a story with relatively realistically rendered characters, um, is only benefited by the animation format. Like theoretically, you could make magnetic rows in live action, you know, um, but I, I don't mm-hmm. think it would be half the film it is if it um, if it was done in that format. Right. Because I, I think it's so much of it is the acting. Like you could do all this with visual effects work and that sort of thing, but you know. So much of it is the the acting, the performance element of it, and I, I, I the reason I mention it is I do think it's sort of the standout in terms of character acting of the three films. Um, the other two have a lot of good stuff, um, but it's a little less subtle than what you get in Magnetic Rose. Absolutely, the standout. I uh, it, it it does it completely makes you want to sit down for the rest of the film. I was hoping that anything could possibly touch on how effective this movie was because I was really put off by the write-ups reading about this movie. Uh, they generally said that, uh, some some even saying that Magnetic Rose uh, shouldn't have led first, that it was a mistake that they play their best film first. And I was thinking, how bad could the rest of these possibly be? And uh, watching Magnetic Rose, I was th- thinking to myself, well, it, that is that is a tough act to follow, but... They deliberately put like, you know, 80 minutes of movie afterward. So um, there, there there could be – it's a high bar, but I think that some of something might be able to clear it. Although I got to admit I wasn't prepared to keep crying as much as I had because then my night would have been effectively ruined. Magnetic Rose is a very, very wonderful piece of animation. I don't know what it is about being – uh, that sort of mixture of 2D and CG that necessarily makes it so potent, but you're completely right about how it works for the medium. I, back when you back when you said that there was uh, 
some level of intelligence prescribed to uh, me or Tim. I think that's about to be uh, dashed away in the capacity of me once we talk about Stink Bomb. <laughs> I... Uh, I, I thought that this was this was tasteful. This was closer to high art than most things. Um, oh, one thing I want to mo- uh, mention is one of the write-ups of this film I saw uh, about uh, Koji Morimoto mentioned the 2004 film Mind Game. Apparently, that one's solid. Oh, oh yeah, the- fantastic. Mind Game rocks. I, I love that one. Um, that That's in my top four on Letterboxd. Yeah, yeah, Mind Game is uh, Masaki Yuasa work. Um and it's it's extremely good. Um, it's it's one of his earliest. Like it's the one it's the one that sort of gave him his name, um, like like really set his star going. Like it took a while to gain traction, at least over here, um, but it, it eventually did in a big way. And then now he's doing you know like a film a year, uh, and he's doing television yeah. work and stuff. Like he's just crazy. Um, what in the film world, we call that the Denny Villeneuve effect. <laughs> You, you eventually make one film that's so good that you're making a film a year for the rest of time. And, and uh, if, if it's a bunch of bad films, then we call that the Terrence Malick effect. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, I, I, oh no. I, I think the thing that uh, resurrected his career for the most part was Devilman Crybaby because that got like all of the views on Netflix for like that whole year. And then we yeah, had like Night is Short, Walk on Girl come out later that year. Oh, for sure. And, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he. Um, I think particularly in the states, like, um, yeah, like I think in, in Japan, he'd always had a, a certain cult appeal, certain um, cult presence. But I think, I particularly, um, yeah. with Crybaby, um, I think uh, like the Totami Galaxy was sort of a cult hit over here when it was only yeah. even despite Funimation. I think Funimation had the license for it for the longest time, locking it to streaming for years. Um, like back when it, you could only stream stuff on their website with ads for, um, and I think they, I think they had some level of subscription program that I, I never used cause I was like 12. Um, yeah, but, um, but yeah, I, I do think you're definitely right on Crybaby. Yeah. They mentioned in the, uh, the, the post interviews as well, the performance of Emily, the daughter of Heinz, that was the only actress where they had to have her come in to personally record because, uh, she didn't have the equipment to do it at home, unlike everybody else. How did yeah. you feel the dub was for the child, Emily? I thought it was good. Um, I like. I I really have no complaints. I think it was, especially for a child actress. Gosh, um, and for for what is a, a purely vocal performance where she's not really able to direct more directly bounce off her um, the other act um, the other actors. Uh, I think I think she she. To- definitely towed that line where um we, that you get with a lot of child performances particularly in animation where they can be a bit overly animated like she's like especially because for the, almost the entirety of when she's on screen she's more actively excited um and and happy and usually that with child ch- uh performances by children that can translate into kind of grating <laughs> um but i i think i think she does a really really good job with it overall um and i think it adds a sort of genuine um a, a really genuine quality and it makes it uh, all the more imp- it enhances the emotional effect more than having um just uh, an adult actress play her um and i yeah i think they did a great job with d- both directing her i'm sure you know because a lot of getting a good performance out of a child actor is direction but i think she did a spectacular job herself yeah absolutely um and like it's it's super rare for um child actors to be in 
anime dubs, uh, it's, it's almost always a female actress playing children, occasionally uh, an adult male actor playing a child. Um, but this this movie did it, I think, I think twice, maybe more, because then also the kid in uh, Cannon Fodder was played by a child actor, they said. And I think both of them did a really good job. Yeah, yeah, both the child actors in this, I think, did really great work. It uh, fits in with the uh, earlier claim that this is going to go down as a very good dub. I'm I'm happy considering the live nature of it that this ended up being a masterful good dub because uh, I've, I've never seen a movie streamed live on Twitch before, especially a premiere of something. Mm-hmm. And um, anime dubs, they can get to be ghost story they can get to be very very different and uh so it was it was nice not watching it become as much of a train wreck as an anime dub could be in fact something very very exquisitely done i was that was amazing yeah i think um nowadays you have i think the the vast majority of anime dubs nowadays um you, you you don't get a whole lot of the funny stinkers like you used to um it's a lot of a lot of perfectly competent work, um, but there's so, sometimes you know it's clear that the, the biggest issue is you have the same stable of actors so often, um, and you know they're they're need they need to produce so much because like like that was the big thing like they can never they can the biggest issue is more a production time thing than I think anything on the the part of the performers or anything. It's just you need to do uh, yeah it's quick turnaround above it, anything else, and that that can sort of harm the product. Um, but but memories is even stand out as someone who who does watch a fair like I who has a lot of interest in English language um, versions of things. Um, I think it's one of those those standouts, and it's very much um, true to the spirit of the original more than anything. Like I, I saw people, a lot of people on Twitter after the fact who were saying um, like I, I don't typically enjoy dubs that much, but it would, this is going to be one of those like like great dubs along with like the Cowboy Bebop dub or um, even like the original Evangelion that sort of thing. Um, both of which are good dubs. And if anyone you try to say otherwise, they are incorrect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, like, like you were saying with the whole quick turnaround thing, like ever since they've been doing the uh, simulcast dub, like they started with Space Dandy and then they kind of started doing the broadcast dubs that were like uh, three weeks after it airs in Japan and like Funimation started doing it and then a couple other companies uh are doing it less so but still very very quick turnaround and like I I know that a a lot of the actors have said that this is exhausting for them and so they're not able to make quite as good of a product a lot of the time Mm -hmm. but this is like something where they're really taking their time with it and it shows uh, although we've been without Satoshi Kon for uh, about 11 years now, uh, one of the works that he was attached to succeeded in moving me again. I wonder how many more times in my life this is going to happen. That that guy's just going to keep coming up, and every time that I find one of his things that he left behind, it's just going to drag me into depression, isn't it? That's What a wonderful has, man. He still has one unfinished movie. Really? Yeah, he was working on one movie and then uh died i think of pancreatic cancer in the middle of production and it's just been on hold ever since um i think it's called dream machine yeah dream machines so 
maybe someday that'll get finished. I sure hope so. Yeah, it's one of those ones where it might be like an AI kind of thing, almost, um, where I, I get why they're, they're you know, worried about moving forward with it. Um, yeah. But yes, definitely um, a high watermark, I think, for both both Morimoto and Khan, um, like uh, indicative of things to come for Khan, particularly, um, because because it is reminiscent of his his future works. And it, that's what that's what's interesting is it's like because it, he isn't the, the sole author of it. It shows a lot of his influences as well, um, because, you know, obviously he collaborated with Otomo quite a bit. Um and was very clearly inspired by Otomo because um, Otomo, like like most anime guys, he's known more, um, in many respects, he's more known more as a mangaka, um, a manga author, than as a um, animation guy. And, and that's sort of how Kon got into the business. Um, like so many others, it was, he wanted to be a manga artist. Um, so he started in animation and then he just fell in love with it. Um, and... You see that in his uh, in his storytelling, it, it's very reflective of uh, Otomo's um, filmic uh, filmic work, yes, but also his, his manga work, um, and you know all, also the pick and mix of other inspirations, um, and that that's I think that's part of why uh, Magnetic Rose feels like uh, a Cohen work more too, um, is because it, it feels like an Otomo work with the character designs that don't quite look like Otomo's usual style. Um, which is mm. sort of what a lot of Satoshi Kon's films look like. Um, <laughs> uh, so it, it kind of parses out um, and is probably why that effect happens. Um, yeah. But yeah, plus, you know, just the character drama and everything. Um, the the emotional the emotional core of the story is, is really solid, um, as with all of Kon. But yeah, basically all of Kon's work. Yeah, final thoughts um, on Magnetic Rose, or do you guys want to move on to discuss Stink Bomb? Because I feel like Austin really wants to talk about Stink Bomb. Yeah, I mean, I think we've we've pretty much covered it. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. All right, so Stink Bomb <laughs> is a film. It's pretty good. It's usually considered the worst one um, by most Strange. Ones. Yeah, which, which is sort of, I guess, damning with faint praise. I think, I think people sort of exaggerate exaggerate it um because it is it is such a tonal flip from magnetic rose i think it turns people off um this is the one that was animated by madhouse too the other two were um studio 4c um and it shows a little bit yeah i mean you can you can tell uh it's it's ink and paint paint drawing a bit more than the the other two which look a bit smoother um in in spots mm-hmm. um but you know, it's it's also a Madhouse production, so it looks really great. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Uh, it, it's also the one with the director who um, isn't quite as well known as the other two. Um, it does, or it doesn't, it doesn't really have that link of being directed by Otomo or written by Kon. Um, yeah, because it was directed by Tensai ok- Okamura, who uh, who's an accomplished artist and uh, director in his own right, but you know, obviously less known. Um, Mm-hmm. Almost uh, exclusively worked in TV, from what I could tell. Yeah, I mean, he worked in a lot of television animation, um, but uh, as, particularly as an animator, because you know, Madhouse is sort of an animator's studio. Um, but he worked at Madhouse, and um, Madhouse is up there. Is like, it's the first one of the first really truly great television animation studios um, in Japan, st- um, starting with uh, their first work, um, Ace Wonderai. 
which he didn't work on, but he, he worked on um, stuff like Len, uh, Lensman with them. Um, and he worked on a lot of, uh, he worked usually as an animator more than anything, but he did a lot of, uh, he was credited for gun art, apparently, on Spriggan, which I have no idea what that means. I'm just looking at his credits right now. Um, and, and yeah, overall, he's yeah better known as a um, as an animator than a director. But I, I and that that kind of shows in Steak Bomb um, in the sort of it's a very visually driven sort of film. Um, but I think overall, uh, he did really good work on, on this particular film. And overall, he's done a lot of great work. Um but enough talk about like production stuff for now. Um, what did uh, you think about Stink Bomb, Tim? Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 like you said, I think all of the individual segments work um, very well at different things. This one is definitely the most straightforward and also the most uh, like silly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's still a very well made, uh, short with, uh, a lot of, a lot of work put into, uh, all the animation and all the characters. Cause there's just like so many people like that was another thing they've talked about in the, uh, post stream interview segment. Um, I, I can't remember who the ADR director was on this one. But, like, she was talking about how there were just so many different actors she had to cast because it's just such a massive thing with all these different people in it. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it, I think it works well for what it is. Um, it's definitely a big tonal shift, but I think it is a good one to have as the middle segment because it's just kind of the comic relief between the really sad one and the really dark one. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was very much welcome. It's quite a thing once you realize what's happening inside of the short, uh, because you feel like you're safe from a sort of malicious presence. Uh, Magnetic Rose was very much trying to rip my heart out of my body, and uh, Stink Bomb, while it doesn't tell you exactly what it's doing at first by the time that the plot is revealed it gives you uh some would say too much time to enjoy watching it play out and i felt like it was uh akin to like meal pairings i i actually found it very very delightful uh that they would just have this like 40 minute length very silly a uh, very kinetic movie to follow something like Magnetic Rose and uh the 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 it, like intent behind doing something like that in an anthology movie was refreshing because th this is only three shorts you actually can have some amount of control over the programming of it this felt like one of those perfect strokes of just like yeah that that's exactly what i needed i'm done crying now i want to laugh a lot and I don't, this is probably influenced more by my background as somebody who thinks that it would be funny to watch the, uh, the government shit its pants. Uh, it was, it was just like wish fulfillment. It, it was lovely. Uh, would you mind if I, I talked for just a second about what this is based off of? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, there's a, there's a lot to be discussed there. Um, oh, go ahead. 
This is uh, based off of the death of Gloria Ramirez that happened in 1994. So on uh, February 19th, the Saturday, Gloria Ramirez walked into uh, Riverside General Hospital around 8 p.m. And uh, yeah, she she had been using she had been using a powerful degreaser known as dimethyl sulfoxide as a home remedy for pain. This is something that you like get at the hardware store. It kind of smells like garlic. And because of urinary blockage and kidney failure, uh, the dimethyl sulfoxide had built up in her body. So at the hospital, the usual procedure was they were going to give her oxygen, right, to sort of help stabilize her. Well, that transformed it into dimethyl sulfone. And uh, it crystallized in her blood because it crystallizes at room temperature. So once they drew her blood, they noticed there were some strange crystals floating in it. And then they proceeded to, you know, shock her, uh, the, the defibrillator, as part of the procedure because I suppose she needed it. She was, like, uh, going out of consciousness or something and needed to get the defibrillator. Those electric shocks transformed it into dimethyl sulfate which is a chemical gas that they used in World War II. And people proceeded to faint around her, and everyone was very confused. It smelled very weird. She was dubbed the toxic lady in the news because it was a really hard time trying to stabilize and treat her, and lots of people got hurt. And that inspired somewhat the plot of this movie. Yeah, particularly, like, the the emphasis on... Um... What is it? Um, on scent on that, like, because like people would say, it, like, it smelled like ammonia. It smelled awful. Um, around her, um, which and just the idea of being in the presence of this person, um, and <laughs> that weird story sort of blowing up into something that's very timely. Uh, it's a it's a film that certainly hits different. Um, in uh, you know, twenty twenty one year of uh, year two of uh, pandemic where um <laughs> this this disease ostensibly um just sort of traveled the globe um and every government power uh completely failed or just actively made the situation worse um it's it's like haha you know it, watching this in 1995 um it's like oh it's related to that thing um that you know that incident of uh, of the toxic lady um which which is a good setup and then the rest of it is painfully contemporary uh <laughs> to our times um yeah i think particularly the 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 government incompetent governmental incompetence um and their very blasé attitude towards human life it's like barely a joke now um it's like oh wait no they just did that yeah they just did the exact same thing again great um, I was I was able to compartmentalize it easier because uh, in in Stink Bomb there is the actual risk of higher up government officials dying from the event, <laughs> which uh, allowed me to put it in a different space in my mind. Because if there's one thing that's been made clear throughout this uh, pandemic, it is that rich people and higher government officials seem to have the medicine for it, while normal people do not. So it was separate in my mind in that capacity. Yeah, that's uh, that that is the one one separating feature. But I mean, like even celebrities and stuff could theoretically contract it if they they were exposed. 
and everything. But but yeah, definitely. Um, it, it's not a you know touch it and you die thing for the uh, the government officials who are the the real villains of the piece, I suppose. Um, the United States government and uh, the Japanese government. But uh, overall, it's a lot of fun. Uh, what is, an interesting choice is I don't think they ever use the term killed um, for the for what happens to the people who are affected. But they're clearly dead. Um, like they very they very much do a de- do a die. The only thing they say is they. Um, I think the uh, the lead, um, the main character, whose name is uh, Nobuo, or Tanaka. I guess Tanaka is probably yeah surname. God, Japanese. How does that work? Um, so t- uh, Tanaka, he says they're unconscious, but I'm assuming that's just wishful thinking on his part. Um, You're just taking a nap. It's fine. Yeah, it smells. You need to take a nap after after you smell a stink. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then then you see like car wrecks and everything but they they never use that specific and i think that's that's good like that was a good decision um it like like even if they are clearly dead um it adds enough distance to what's going on for it to stay funny particularly after a film where um just immediately following a film where where death and its consequences were very weighty um this sort of this very casual attitude toward towards it is uh, a very it, it's an interesting decision but i think it almost makes it more impactful um, just directly drawing contrast between the two, um, and sort of on the subject of the lead. So in Stink Bomb, uh, here's a synopsis for you. Um, how about halfway through talking about it, but um, Stink Bomb is ostensibly the story of a man who takes an experimental government drug um, because he's very very sick and he would like to not be very very sick. Um, and it makes him emit this odor whenever he begins to sweat. Um, it causes a chemi- uh, causes a chemical reaction um, that uh, kills people around him who who inhale um, the result. Of, but it does, it does not affect him, and he's sort of unaware of it. Basically, um, it's the plot of that episode of SpongeBob where he eats that horrible cocktail, um, and it makes his breath stink real bad. Um, <laughs> but uh, to the nth degree. Um, and it's it's enjoyable. Uh, there's a lot there's a lot of enjoyable elements. I think um, it's uh, it's largely about the government's failure to contain him, um, as they they just throw everything in the kitchen sink and cause more destruction even than he would have necessarily in trying to stop him because they don't just say hey stop. Um, they don't attempt to actively communicate or anything. They just like no stop, which you know a very good and accurate commentary actually. Um, Again, barely hyperbolic now. Um, (laughs) But I think um, sort of in discussing it, um, the lead character is this extremely pathetic man, um, like and the the sort of emphasizing this this podcast discussion of the English performance. um, He's played by uh, Stephen Fu, uh, who does a, a really, really good job on that. I think um like he he sounds suitably pathetic um throughout um and kind of uh just like this very sad kind of mopey person kind of put upon guy um which I think really it pushes the joke uh very very well um the the end result there's a lot of great animation too uh talking about that but um before I get into that did you guys want to talk about performances in this one too cuz I, th- I thought they were overall really strong. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have anything uh, specific on that front, but yeah, I mean, I thought it was all pretty solid. Uh, good performances uh, matched the characters really well. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's an apt description. I think 
um, the uh, the character acting in this one is a bit more cartoonish. Um, obviously, than Magnetic Rose, it's a bit more exaggerated, which fits, you know, with what we're getting. Um, the, the, the less care is taken towards um, like accurate recreation of movement and life in in that animation. Sorry, I just realized, Austin, do you have anything to say about the the performances? I I'm in the same uh, boat as Tim on this one. I I think uh, what you see is what you get. There, uh, it's 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 the young man whose actions accidentally endanger the whole world sort of anime thing. And uh, it, it yeah, it's it's not uh, a heavy piece for emotions like uh, Magnetic Rose. You're not staring at anybody's face trying to analyze exactly how they're feeling. Uh, Maybe one character you're trying to analyze what they're thinking, but there's a lot of um, sort of archetypes that pop up in the movie, and they all sound perfect. They all sound how you how you think they would sound, and uh, so it's, it's not often in an anime that you watch, or at least animes that I've seen, where there's there's a black character. That was fun. That was that was unique, and uh, it, it yeah, the general general sounds relatively uh, commanding. The uh, the the people who talk down to uh, Nabuo are are adequately uh, <laughs> shit wrecky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're condescending in a way that's very funny. Uh, I keep thinking back to the shot that's played twice, where Nabuo is pleading to the news camera for somebody to come help him, and they uh, they frame his face in that way that just really accentuates <laughs> what a man this is, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, it's uh, another another funny part is when the uh, grandmother is up in the helicopter and uh, they take a shot at Nabuo <laughs> and the voice actress that they have for the grandma is played over, you know, her voice is processed in a way to simulate a megaphone out of a helicopter or whatever system they were using. And it's like, are you trying to kill my grandson? <laughs> there's, there's there's plenty here. It's just not uh, it, it's not like multidimensional uh, like super acting craziness like magnetic rose uh they they did a really good job it's impressive how many characters they had to depict on screen i uh i think the action in in this is what excels which is exactly what i guess you say about something done by madhouse yeah yeah the action animation particularly um the uh the sequences of of, you know the military throwing just everything at him um their effects animation department is always incredible um the stuff of him on the uh, of uh Nobuo on the um, on his bicycle, uh, or um, his uh, is it a? Oh man, now I can't even remember. It's a bicycle, right? Not a moped, or is it like? A, I, I think it. I think it's a moped yeah. or like a motorcycle or something. Yeah, yeah, it's like a motor scooter. I'm getting. I think I'm worried. I'm getting it mixed up with a segment of Robot Carnival. Um, he rides both. He rides both. I believe there's a bit where he's on an actual bicycle because oh. I think he takes the bicycle to work. And uh, then he switches it for a motor scooter at some point. You're right. You're right. That you're poor right. motor scooter. Yeah, that poor motor scooter. Yeah, because he gets yeah he gets the bicycle and then he accidentally runs off the road, um, or drives off the road, and then he has the uh, the moped later on um, that he sort of uses. Um, I think, yeah, particularly um, the animation of the um, the missiles moving um, moving is really incredible. Um, I think what what's almost what's really funny to me um is i'm pretty sure the the suits that they wear um those sort of uh space suits those uh fancy space suits they wear i think that's what's on the cover for the um the film 
Um, and it's this very somber mm-hmm. sort of spaceman and with a bunch of tubes sticking out of him. Um, and it's from the dumbest segment, um, from the silliest one. <laughs> um, and it's given sort of front stage in this piece. I, I like that a lot. Um, yeah. But no, I just think it's a really incredible, a really gorgeous film. Um, you know, all three of these segments are gorgeous in their own very distinct way. Um, but this is this is the most anime one, I guess, um, is how I would describe it. But but even then, it has an undercurrent of like all of these are like you know anime, quote unquote, um, what whatever anime means. <laughs> um, there's one for you to chew on, audience, and not me just trying to be nebulous and not explaining myself. Um, but um this, this is this is where we're gonna link the kenny lauderdale video about what might be anime oh yeah exactly kenny lauderdale please sponsor <laughs> us um i watched none of your videos but i've heard good things uh <laughs> but no i think um stink pop is overall overall really strong uh it's got new relevance um uh, it's based on a really interesting story. So if you're interested in urban legends, check that out. <laughs> or not even urban legends, but just weirdo medical cases, cold case stuff. Um, there's a there's a good thing for you to look into. Um, but I think it's just overall a really enjoyable middle piece. I think, um, again, it probably gets the hardest time just because it's, it's following up Magnetic Rose, which is a tough act to follow. But I think it was overall a good spot to stick it in. Um, mm-hmm. And oh, and the, the dub was done. This was one of the ones that was done by Sound Cadence, just as a minor note. Um, and the other two segments of the film, aside from Magnetic Rose, um, so Stink Bomb and uh, uh, Cannon Fodder, which I always want to call Memories. I don't know why. Um, but uh, the, those two, um, obviously, they have just um, they didn't have any uh, real digital animation sequences to repair. Um, so I'm not going to mention that. But the remaster still looks very good on this this one. Mm-hmm. Um, Agreed. And I think that's it. Um, is there anything else you guys wanted to mention before we move on? I would say that the uh, the shot of uh, Nubuo coming out and there are like a million helicopters was the biggest fuck yeah moment in this uh, segment. That really blew my mind. I, I know it's really nothing to remark on, but Madhouse is always a treat. I love Red Line. Yeah, the, those helicopters—they really—that was the Madhouse shine. Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess I get why critics say this is the worst one. It's—it's it's interesting because uh, it just wasn't trying to do anything terribly complicated. The other two, you could make arguments that they are trying to elevate the art form in a certain way, whereas this one is just trying to tell a pretty straightforward story and make you laugh. So I. I guess I'm excited to talk about cannon fodder because it's going to be uh, so different in tone. Oh, so different in tone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, cannon fodder. Um, so cannon fodder, the last segment of the film, um, was actually the first one I watched because when I was a dumb child, um, I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to watch these in order. Um, and that was the one that w- that interested me the most uh, visually. Um, it's, the, uh, it's the one directed by um, Katsuhiro Otomo himself. And it's this uh, sort. It's a war parable. It's sort of a day, a day in the life of this weird of this um, country, um, pseudo futuristic. Uh, very clearly based on um, you know in general fascist states, but um, the way it renders SS, um, the way it renders S's, um, pretty sure, clearly shows its origins. Um, 
I'm fairly certain. Maybe I'm maybe I'm reading too yeah. much into that, but um, what? what yeah, I... that, that was that was definitely there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it yeah it's just sort of a day in the life of this this fascist state where they have massive cannons um, that they they they're always fight uh, fighting some nebulous enemy um, every day they're going to win the fight um, you know you always hear about all the substantial losses the enemy have taken as they fire these cannons and we never you know we never get to look at the enemy of course uh, that that's something I think is interesting about it is it's it's definitely on this. Um, it's this vision of uh, you're just fed this uh, idea that we have to beat the enemy and we have no idea who it is. Yeah. Uh, to to quote the old, uh, I think it's Orwell, the war is not meant to be won. It's meant to be continuous. It's a hamster wheel society where, where it just generates cannonballs. Yeah, exactly. Like you get you get a sense that you don't know if there's another enemy. Maybe they are scoring hits. Maybe there's absolutely nothing. But in in fascist states like that, there's always there needs to be something. There needs to be some opposition. Um, and it's and it's stated in a way that like like the SS stuff um is pretty pretty pointed. Um, but I think what's what's so interesting about it is not the you know the blatant blatant fascism of it, but the like the humanity shown in the the individual characters um and how they they exist and how they they reflect the society they're a part of because you know it's not like a lot of a lot of stuff with fascist states you know it's not um uh god the the disney short education for death or whatever um where you know they're they're being molded into to machine men with machine minds blah blah um they're they're people that exist in a, in a shitty system and they just sort of mindlessly propagate it they're not necessarily bad people just for uh, participating and you know for working in the factories this that or the other but um it, it shows how that sort of complacency not even complacency but just how you know you you are a product of what you're born into so you just follow it you just like the the weird um because the the crux of the film is essentially um more it's more follows the the loading of a cannon um and then we see little snippets of the individual of the mother and the son's life um, whereas the father is one of the people loading the cannons, just everything about it is um, really effective um, in terms of. I, I think it a it works very good as a closing segment, just because it's very it's very beautiful, but it's also very low key. Uh, it sort of uh, ramps down throughout because you sort of have the big moment moment of the cannon being fired, but that's about it in terms of climactic events. And I think it does a good job of that. I. Uh, I almost wish there was a little bit less. I do think um, the loading of the cannon almost drags a tiny bit, um, but uh, I, get, I definitely get what they were, why they did that, the way they did. You know, you want to see every every part of the product process, yeah. the needless ritual um, applied to it, and the, the tedium. Um, <clears throat> I just think like maybe like a minute could have been trimmed from it without losing that point. Um, <laughs> But I, th- I think overall, um, the, it's interesting seeing because the, all the character designs are like Otomo. They're very clearly Otomo designs, but they're like Otomo, the the uh, the psychic, the Esper children from uh, Akira more than um, his normal human designs. Right. Yeah. Um, it, this this segment was definitely something that um, my first time watching it, uh, yeah, just kind of washed over me. Um, it didn't have 
a super impactful effect on me the first time I watched it because like the first the first two there's a very clear story and like there's a beginning middle and end and this was like you were saying a life in the day or a day in the life and um so it's just kind of showing the stuff that's happening in this world but uh, upon revisiting i think i definitely developed a much better appreciation for this one um it's yeah very 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 good look at fascist state um and like it's painted in a really interesting way like the art style is very unique as far as the three segments um and uh just just the structure of the piece because at first it kind of plays as like a propaganda thing which i think is the point and like you were saying about the the the, the runtime of ju- them just loading the cannon is a whole thing probably like a, a solid five minutes of them loading that cannon and showing like all the intricacies of that and i think part of that was a play on the propaganda aspect of it and then immediately after they fire that cannon you start seeing the really dark end of it where you're seeing uh the the workers uh pleading for safer work conditions and like the the dad is just beat and exhausted and just wants a safer work environment and then he goes home to his son who is just eating the shit up and son's just like uh and then and i think in the japanese version and the english version he says two different things but um he gets the same answer it's equally applicable um he's i think in the japanese version he asks uh who are we fighting and in the dub Yes, why are we fighting? And the dad just says, you'll understand when you're older. Which I think is really poignant because the reality is um, it, we, nobody understands. It's just uh, it's just the game that the people in power are playing. <laughs> One thing I, I thought was interesting that it, it wasn't a full totalitarian state in the aspect that there were protests happening. There were uh, people lobbying for uh, less carcinogens uh, to be exposed to less carcinogens from the uh, cannons firing and uh, such. And uh, but the one thing they mentally couldn't break down was why are we fighting? You know, that that that's rendered to sort of like a question children ask and uh, to not be answered. I, I thought that was very interesting because it's it's sort of they have been so beaten down mentally yeah they don't even question it anymore they can question the minutia of it but the idea of any of it as a whole being challenged is completely worked out of their souls right back on the the text for just a second i i thought it was something to resemble russian text it it looked like somebody had worked out a version of cyrillic where the uh letters were actually the english alphabet uh, at first, I thought it was 
just Russian, and then I it did that goofy thing to your eyes where you're like, oh, that's just very stylized English. Yeah, yeah, it kind of reminded me of like sometimes you'll see like a T-shirt where someone will take katakana characters and turn it into an English word, which I kind of hate that, but uh, I think it's used well here. You you get those extremely human moments though as a day in the life piece because uh for the son it immediately gives you he's late for breakfast and then for the dad it's that his job is hard and he's tired and for the mom it's that there's like workplace gossip they very much have formed a society where they they get to have all of the uh like quote-unquote personality things that we get here but it, it makes you sort of understand, in the, even in this microcosm, that uh, they're trapped inside a bigger system where very important things are not questioned the way that they should be. It, it was very clever, and I personally also didn't like it the first time I saw it. I was trying to figure out, like, I, I, I misguessed. I, I thought it was like an allegory for environmentalism. Because the cannons were placed where chimneys would be placed. Uh, if this were like a Monty Python thing, you know, uh, the animation styles were similar in my mind. I was like, is this some kind of commentary about burning coal, fossil fuels? And I had to be reminded by uh, you and Ethan that it was, uh, it, it was, it was just a, a bigger piece about fascist society. And uh, I... I, th I think there's a couple things working for it. it. It probably gets better every time you watch it, especially if you don't misinterpret what it's saying. And then there's something very important about it. Uh, from an animation standpoint, not just the muted colors or the highly textured environments, it has this crazy cinematography thing going on. This whole one-shot bit. It pulls a bird man. It, it's yeah. <laughs> As cheap as the tricks that it uses are, you know, it's more more akin to Alfred Hitchcock's rope than it would be to, like, Gaspar Noé's Irreversible or, uh, you know, Inuritu's Birdman. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's trying to make it all look like one shot. And they do some interesting things, you know. They, they use wipes in a weird way. Uh, they project 2D animation images onto 3D geometry, there's a scene in the beginning with hallways where I was like, oh, it's pretty, pretty advanced for 1995. Getting a whole yeah. animated cell projected onto even flat 3D geometry. It was very impressive. Uh, one of the if you do a cursory Google of this, there was this guy uh, with a, a blog spot I took some stills from. And apparently they were at least back in the early 2000 aughts uh, using the segment at a Vancouver animation school to sort of uh, teach lessons with. I, I think inside the animation community, this thing made some ripples because of what it achieved technically. Interesting. I think particularly um, regarding the, the cinematography and the one cut thing, um, or the, the no cuts rather, um, is that so that's, it's not just like, like it's a novelty in film, of course, but it's also a novelty in, in animation when you there are more cuts there are more cuts per minute 
um, particularly Japanese animation, than what you would get in live action film, um, largely as a, as a cost cutting measure, you know, because if you cut from somebody in a different pose, then you don't have to animate them moving into that. You can just change the camera angle, um, which has always been, I, I've always liked it. Um, but at the same time, I recognize the artistic merit and what they're doing here. And I think it's really interesting, um, mostly because it's harder to do. It's much harder to do um, <laughs> because then you have to figure out the logistics of, um, not of because like obviously it's very hard with a you know when it's a um live action film as well because of you know planning around and everything but then with this it becomes a logistical nightmare of how do you make it so that um how do you how do you pay for it a um b um how do you budget it out um in such a way that it will um what's the phrase it'll look good um it'll look good because you um on, on some level you kind of open yourself up to uh, like it you know more limited cinematography, which is part of the appeal of Japanese animation, is the m- the more complex uh, shot composition than what you uh, would get in American animation. But they pull it off so so well, um, particularly with like a lot of difficult camera movements, because God knows animating anything perspective is such a pain in the ass, which is part of what makes it so neat. Um, and it's weird because usually anything where you're where you're animating around a character or that sort of thing, it's or, or even animating with th- a three dimensional quality. Um, that, that is usually reserved for, like, magnetic rows, like what you saw in that, where it's the more impact, like, um, when they're they're moving the spaceship or, you know, any any sort of camera movement in that um, is, is reserved for a more uh, tense scene or more climactic scene. Whereas with uh, the, the, the entirety of this short film, of um, Cannon Fodder, it's so low-key um it it really is so reserved um but it, it adds to that almost naturalistic quality in a way uh that i don't think the traditional japanese animation style of quick cuts um would uh which is neat it's neat and good and cool overall i like cartoons and i like this cartoon it at least grows on you and it's immediately apparent that it's a, a technical marvel and i i think the ending of the short is overall a really good way to end the film because uh, the child it wakes up in the beginning and then goes to bed in the end. And then something interesting happens. A siren goes off and it's ambiguous whether something good, something bad, like really bad is happening. And he sleeps through it all the same. And it's, it's sort of a haunting image to leave it on, which is good because... You know, this film, Memories, that, that word ties in directly to Magnetic Rose, and uh, but it doesn't quite as well tie into the next two. And sort of the uh, leaving it on a note of like sort of horror matches up with the whole like through line, which is that human beings, uh, you know, get confused by and overwhelmed by technology. I, I think that it was a good choice to end this movie on sort of a haunting note because that sort of it it brings you back to the more serious implications of magnetic rose sort of uh what what can happen i i I think tonally it was a good choice oh yeah it reminded me of the ending of the zulawowski horror movie possession which is uh i think the last horror movie that everybody hasn't seen and that everybody will see someday it's like the last classic cult horror movie that everybody has to watch eventually uh, it also pulls the same thing where there's a child stuck in frame in the last shot of it, and then there's bright flashing lights, and it sort of leaves you on that note of, is the child going to be okay? Left ambiguous. 
It's, uh, I, I think a, yeah, a smarter person than me would be able to articulate exactly why that works. I, I haven't gotten the words to form like a beautiful poetic sentence or anything, but for me, it, it definitely does match up for the anthology is a, a clever way to end it. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting for, for myself. I read it more as, um, I read it as cannons being fired. Um, again, like in the night, like, you know, the idea that it's like the idea that a child could sleep through it like that. Um, because he was you know, just so used to it. But, but I think that's also an interesting read that, um, it is sort of ambiguous. They don't use like explicit canon sound effects, you know, like, um, which, uh, I think works certainly like I, there is a sense of ambiguity to it. Um, where like, I, I say that, but I wasn't positive. Like, I, I think that's what that is. Um, but I, I think, uh, yeah, the, the sort of, uh, through line, of the film, um, you know, that sort of technological basis. Yeah. The memories is really a good title for <laughs> magnetic rose and, uh, not the other two quite so much, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it was an interesting choice <laughs> for the name. Interesting, uh, kind of in quotes. Yeah. Watching it, I was kind of curious or it, I was just kind of wondering what the, overall common theme was between the three pieces and i'm not sure there really is one at least not one that i picked up on um it's just kind of a connection of stories but i think it works um because i think it has uh, a good overall flow to it a a piece to make you sad a piece to make you laugh and a piece to make you think <laughs> There you go. Yeah, I think um, I, I think even if there is no, th I, I think the the actual reason it's called memories is just to tie it in with an ongoing uh, Otomo manga um, that would have had some level of name recognition to the public at large. Um, so it's not just an Otomo thing; it's an Otomo thing based on a comic book like Akira, which you all saw in theaters, you know, back in 1988. <laughs> Like, but I, th I think the structure of it still works very well despite that. Um, yeah, because there's no real connective tissue um, like there is. There's no, like, like Robot Carnival has it and uh, Neo Tokyo both have bookend segments um, where, where it goes back to the, the opening short at the end of it. Um, this one doesn't have that. Like, you could, you could very easily watch these out of context, too, just on their own as, like, standalone OVAs. Um, but I think they, they do benefit from being viewed in the original context. There is a certain flow, and they, they work well as a, as a sort of triple feature um, of mm -hmm. short works. Um, and I think, I think it's overall strong. I think the performances um, in, yeah, sort of getting into the performances of uh, this particular one of, um, of uh, Cannon Fodder, is I think the performances, particularly like we um we said earlier, of the um, the child actor in here was really really good. Um, yeah, I think the the performances in in this one are similar to uh, Stink Bomb, uh, very very good. Like um, in that that they're very fitting. Um, they're all very competent. Um, but they, they aren't qu they aren't quite as standout as Magnetic Roses. But I think they're again, it's just there are fewer opportunities for like big acting moments than in um, Magnetic Rose. Uh, which you know has all the, those opportunities for it, um, but everybody does their roles extremely well. Um, the mom actually, I liked a lot too. Um, her performance. Uh, it, it had to be sort of difficult considering this bizarre, like humanoid animation style where people don't look quite right. Mm -hmm. Figuring out exactly how they're supposed to sound that must have been kind of a task. Yeah, I because. Uh, 
the urge would be to make them sound like I, I don't know that they they were like uh, haven't eaten in forty eight days, or maybe give them some kind of vocal thing that makes them sound like they're actively in pain, and instead they you know chose to make them sound like uh, normal people. Uh, I, I could imagine, you know, in, in lesser hands, this could have, this could have, somebody could have made this very silly, but they, they chose fantastic voice actors for all three of the characters. It was uh, very believable when they opened their mouth that there was th just the right amount of real life and just the right amount of the society in there. It, it must have been interesting in auditions to figure out, like, all right, how would this person sound in real life if this was just continually how they were going to live from birth to death, what would this person sound like? Yeah, yeah. I, th I thought it was interesting to hear Mike Pollock as the dad in this one, and he was also in um, uh, Stink Bomb, which I noticed his voice in Stink Bomb. I did not realize he was the dad until I mentioned that in the the post-stream thing. But yeah, that that was interesting to hear that he was in both segments. There was a mention, I think, of Mike Pollock in the post stream where one of the other voice actors was talking about how hard it is to go up against Mike Pollock because of how, how great he is. And he he said something about, like, doesn't matter who, who you are or how good you are, Mike Pollock will eat your lunch and, and nail the audition and laugh all the way to the bank. That's fair. He, he is the Eggman. He is the Eggman. He's got the master plan. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, Mike Pollock's always great. Um, and he was a lot of good work. Who was he in the um Instinct Bomb? Was he the general or? Yeah, I think I think he was. I think he was the general. I I remember hearing his voice, and I'm pretty sure that's who he played. Yeah, he played general officer. Yeah, and like he used very different voices for both of those characters, and definitely gave them the life that they needed. Yeah, I think for like um, what few lines the father has, um, it's pretty perfect. He, he sounds very world weary. He makes he does good grunts um, for all you know. Uh, and the two two some odd I think lines he even has are good. Um, even the the noise like I think the um, uh, what's uh, what was super effective too. Um, one of the more effective bits was seeing his home life and then seeing him at work, where um, when he's sort of unmasked. And, you know, he's, he's terrified. We see him in a very emotional state versus that sort of demure, like, ho-hum coming back to home um, for an evening. Um, that contrast uh, was really good, particularly, you know, when your ass is on the line when you might lose your job um, because you mess up in a big way. I think that's something that's like, I mean, yes, obviously it's a, it's a facet of, of like a fascistic society um, where, you know, so much of your worth is tied to your job. But I think they do a really good, um, like it makes it really pointed um, even in any, you know, society, any, uh, I, we're saying society so much, somebody's going to make the joke. Somebody's going to make the, the we live in a society joke um, and that's not funny. And I know it's going to be Tanner. It's going to be Tanner because that's what Tanner does. I'm, this is where we put the Joker image for Tanner. <laughs> exactly. I'm the Tanner baby. Uh, <laughs> I think good performances overall. Discotheque's remaster, as always, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Um, do you guys have any final thoughts on memories? Because uh, I think we, we basically said everything we can say about it. Because we've talked a lot about this movie. Because there's a lot to talk about. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, think overall, um, 
good movie, good remaster, good dub. Uh, it's handled with care. I'm excited to see how it gets a second life after the release. And I'm excited to get that sweet, sweet Blu-ray. Yeah, same. I'm excited to see all the... Um, a, to see it, you know, prop, uh, quote-unquote properly um, when it's in, you know, the highest possible quality instead of, you know, again, being streamed on on Twitch. Um, but also, right. uh, also all the extra features because they're really packing it in with, like, interviews and um, liner notes and whatnot as, as, as is usual for Discotech. I think it might have a commentary track or, or two, knowing them. Um, so that that's very, very exciting. Um, moving forward with that, with that. Um, Austin, do you have any thoughts? It is positively incredible to think uh, how they did this. Uh, they recorded a lot of the voices remotely and that they didn't have a negative to work off of, that they most likely used the, um, you're not going to believe me when I say this, but the uh, upscaling AI, uh, the most popular data set used for animation uh, the name that I've heard for it since I've been using it is actually called Waifu 2X. It was a, I'm not kidding. I've been using this thing since about 2015. Uh, and it was, it was just trained on like millions of images of cartoons so that it would know how they look like uh, when you convert them into higher resolutions. I cannot, I could not tell watching it that they used specifically a, a an AI to do that. Uh I'm going to be paying attention to Discotech from now on because this was just such an impressive introduction. And I appreciate Memories a lot. I think it was Animage, the, the, the publication that ranked it as the 68th greatest anime production of all time. And as much as I've said dumb little things about how one of the lines in Magnetic Rose was dumb or how some things might have been tropey, this was... Uh, really solid watch it felt like a great use of my time and it, it it was colorful in so many different ways it made me feel so many different things uh you know shock sadness uh happiness and uh ultimately that that pensive note that it leaves on i would recommend this to just about uh anybody who's seen at least a, a sat through at least a few feature-length animes and so it, it's I, I'm I'm happy to have seen this when it's streamed. I'm really happy for when the Blu-ray drops because I hope that this gets brought up more. I uh, have never used... I, I've never heard people talk about Magnetic Rose uh, just in passing, and I hope that they do in the future <laughs> because it really did live up to its... Expect or it, it really did live up to its reputation. And, uh, God, yeah, I'm happy that this thing got uh, sort of revived from the ether by these people in particular. It's it's really impressive work, and I could not be happier that you recommended this, Ethan. Yeah, no, um, and just um, as a, as sort of a coda, um, regarding how they how they did this, uh, it's a proprietary system, um, that they made called Astro Res, so it's all you know in house built, um, specifically for you know remastering this sort of. It's based on um, because part of it is also based on uh, direct feed from laser discs and stuff. Um, because you can actually get a really good signal if you don't use the old stuff that would give it uh, the old equipment that would, you know, AV composite cables that would give you a simple interlaced out output. Um, it's, it's based on the same technology they used to um, scan the Domesday laser discs in um, Britain. Like record, these are old record, uh, like government, federal government things. Um, 
and you end up getting a really really clean version of the film um and they they developed a lot of that their own stuff in-house um using existing technologies they're not just obviously not just um relying on outside stuff um and it's you know shows <laughs> their their work is very very good um and even even the stuff because so much of it was had they did have to you know restore by hand um as they do with so many of their other films i'm sure um that you know there's a lot of impressive artists uh you know you're uh oh the, the ones that always stand out are justin Vegas and brady, uh, brady hartel but i know there are other people who obviously worked on this this particular production um and who deserve to be properly credited on the release um and uh, yeah, just because you know, discotheque media. So many of the people at there are—they're just fans. Um, they're big um, dorks, same as you or I. Um, and that—that that very much shows in the product. It's always very, very full of love. Um, they do about everything they can get away with, um, which is you know great. Uh, it, it very much yeah feels like a labor of love um, from top to bottom. Um, the restoration, the dub. Uh, everything and I think as a result I think it will pay off in dividends I think this is going to be a uh, a classic sort of release um and I'm, I'm looking forward to it um yeah I mean I think that pretty much covers it um this, this is a solid restoration and uh translation and I'm excited to see the blu-ray see it get talked about a bit more and be more accessible to people. Hopefully they do the same for Neo Tokyo soon, because that's one that I've been wanting to watch for a while. All right. Uh, This has been the Bomb Squad podcast, talking about the 1995 film Memories. Thank you for listening, and have a good rest of your day.